it's Friday night, and that means that I have reached peak exhaustion cumulatively over the week, and uh, I've bottomed out in terms of my competence. So it's going to be an interesting show this this night, this evening. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. Freelance Friday, we call it. I'm going to take a uh, little bit looser approach to the program. I mean, we're generally pretty easygoing here regardless. Very, very commonly, the show goes in whatever direction the callers want to take it, but particularly so on Friday nights. And I, and I want to throw a couple of kind of floating topics out there that we'll take calls on. I mean, we'll take calls on whatever. Well, I'm not going to pretend we're discriminating. But but a couple of things that I want to plant in your head as things that you can call in and share with us. Number one, I'm interested in your recommendations, and this is completely apolitical. This has nothing to do with politics. It has nothing to do with the news. I'm interested in you, and it's, to, it's totally self-serving also and selfish and a personal use of a major market radio station. I'm interested in your recommendations for bingeable television shows. Like really good bingeable television shows because you haven't seen Breaking Bad yet. I haven't, and I know that's going to be on a lot of people's list. I, I mean, I've watched a little bit of it, but not, I haven't gotten hooked into it. What I have gotten hooked into recently is this show on Netflix called Ozark. Oh, which that's like a redo of Breaking Bad. Yeah. It, it strikes me as being very similar to Breaking Bad, but the execution of it. And, you know, I'm like, I don't know, five, six episodes into it. The execution of it hooked me much more immediately than Breaking Bad did. Well, I mean, it's basically Breaking Bad in one season. Interesting. See, I wish I could get that reference, but I haven't watched enough Breaking Bad. So You will see the same story points drawn out over multiple seasons in Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad is good. There are some amazing episodes and it's it's actually now that I've started watching it the second time around, it's funnier the second time around. Sure. Because you see a character and they say something, you're like, oh, of course they would say that. Right, 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 right. Well, and it's it's probably less stressful the second time around because that's the thing about ah uh, no, not as I feel everything more okay. the second time. I got gotcha. you. Because that's the thing about Ozark is that you got to be in the mood to watch that show or and Breaking Bad as well because. It's not an easygoing, oh, I'm going to flip it on and have a good time entertainment. It's it's an experience. It takes a little bit of of uh, endurance in order to get through it. Uh, but generally speaking, my problem with TV shows and trying to get invested in a new TV show is that my time is extraordinarily valuable. I, I don't have a lot of it. And so my tolerance my threshold in terms of you know if, if i'm start to watch something and it's not clicking i'm not engaged within a relatively short period of time i'm not going to follow through i'm just gonna let it lie and so that's why i'm asking for your recommendations tonight things that you have already you've already done the legwork for me you've already checked it out and uh, on your recommendation you're you're offering you're submitting uh, a particular show that you have in mind Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. The number, by the way, 651-989-5855. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. The other topic that is going to be dominate our conversation tonight much more than TV shows is I want to talk about libertarianism 
and and the concept of liberty. And in particular, I want to try to unpack the skepticism and some of the the mockery and ridicule that libertarians get because I've what, something that I've noticed and I, I tried to pull up a tweet before we came on the air tonight, but I ran out of time. One of our, our Twitter followers sent me a message a week or two ago. We got into this exchange. I forget what the, what the topic was, what it was that we were talking about. But at one point, the, the way the exchange ended was with him saying, oh, this is why I can't stand libertarians. They all sound like like high school nerds who are debating philosophy in the in the lunchroom and their ideas are completely impractical and they don't work in the real world if that's how you feel about liberty and libertarianism i want to hear from you tonight because i want to understand where you're coming from like to me the notion because here's what liberty is right just the the thumbnail sketch of what liberty is it's you owning your life it's you not being somebody else's slave it's you getting to define your own values and then utilizing your resources, which you own, in order to pursue those values and then getting to keep the fruit of your labor. It's not belonging to somebody else. That's what liberty is. What part of that is worthy of ridicule? What part of that doesn't work in the real world and why? I'm really interested in your thoughts on that if you have issues with libertarians and the way that they try to pursue Liberty in the public discourse, 651-989-5855, and we'll get into some articles, particularly from Reason, that kind of flesh this out whenever it sort of organically comes up in the program tonight. But let's uh, not keep Chris in Minneapolis waiting. Chris, welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Hey. Um, I don't know. I just I suppose I ain't got really nothing gripping, but I just wanted to ask you a question. How come... When you're a lefty, you can get away with anything. But when you're not, you can't get away with anything. And and when you call in to ask somebody, like I called another show, and the guy couldn't answer my question, like you know the Jamar guy. Yeah, yeah. I I, I heard I heard like, when you called oh, in the other night. Your call, click. Yeah. When they can't <laughs> answer your question. Yeah. They, yeah. they, they like try to divert it. Go off in all different well, directions. Okay, so so I heard when you called in uh, when when Brad and Max were filling in for me on mm-hmm. Tuesday, and I, I heard yeah, your your screed about Jamar, and my, my I'll, I'll tell you now what I was thinking then when I listened to it, mm-hmm. which is that which is that, and I'm not trying to defend Jamar here. Don't get me wrong, but Jamar is a really really bad example of. A left-wing person like in term, if you're trying to, to, to draw some sort of generalization as to what it's like to engage with liberals or Democrats or left-wing people Jamar is a bad example because J- Jamar and I love the guy don't get me wrong I know you probably you might be there's like a 50 50 chance that he's listening right now that you're you're not gonna get an argument from Jamar what you get from him is kind of like this theatrical sort of peacock display of of uh, a rainbow spectrum of emotion, right? Like it, it's the it's this yep. kind of performance art that he engages in, and you just got to take it for what it is. When we have him on the show, when he calls in, when he, he's coming and been in studio and what have you, you you may notice I don't really try too hard to engage him in argument because I know that's not 
that's not the the stage on which he operates. And so exactly. you kind of got to adjust your approach to him. So that's the question about Jamar specifically. But to your broader question about the the seeming hypocrisy in the culture, why it is that you know lefties can get away with anything by way of example. You know when uh, Peter was it Henry Fonda or Peter Fonda? I don't know which Fonda said, made comments about. Uh, I forget. It was I can't remember the name of Trump's kid off the top of my head for whatever reason. But the Eric. No, 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 no. The young one. Um, Baron. Baron. Thank you. When he made comments about Baron Trump saying he, to the effect of he hopes that Baron is victimized by pedophiles. You know, this was in the context of the kids being separated from their families at the border and what have you. That that incredibly vile comment, which would have ended the careers of a, a wide variety of people. In fact, it took place adjacent to Roseanne Barr's career ending. Because she she made a comment about uh, Valerie Jarrett saying that Valerie Jarrett was the offspring of the Muslim Brotherhood and monkeys or apes or something along those lines. You know, I mean, it was it was a horrible comment on Roseanne's part. She shouldn't have made it. But to your point, one comment was career ending and the other was just a bump in the road that nobody cared about. And here's my answer to your question as to why that that disparity exists. That disparity exists because the left for decades now, has made a conscientious and very effective effort at seizing control of the institutions in this country, the media, the academy, you know, institutions of higher learning, uh, corporations. They, they control it all. They control the culture, Hollywood. So they set the tone. They set the context. They set the stage on which the rest of us are merely players. And so we end up having to dance to their tune. Now, the solution to that is for, for us to take back that ground. And unfortunately, I haven't seen a, a strong movement amongst conservatives, amongst people on the right, to, to try to seize back that territory and various institutions, particularly things like Hollywood. You know, for, for whatever reason, conservatives don't tend to be particularly artsy-fartsy. And I have a theory as to why that is as well. That maybe we can get into later, but you know, there, that's my thank you. Yeah, that's my uh, that's, thumbnail sketch answer yeah, to your thank question. Thank you. You made my point. All right. Great. All right. Have good a good night. Yep. You too. Let's talk to Jeremy in Shakopee. Welcome to the program. Hello. Hey. Yeah. Uh, the reason why I was calling is, is um, I find it that uh, the media has artfully uh, got rid of their deplorables, uh, the white supremacists, the neo-Nazis, blah, 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 and they've called them the alt-right. When in actuality, if you look at the spectrum, these people want the government to bring back segregation, and they want the government to take charge and make these people back into second-rate citizens, which would be more of the left side having the government strong-arm. Now, the thing that I find the most unique or interesting about this all is, is that the conservative speakers out there like Rush Limbaugh or Hannity and all that have been calling these people the alt-right. So they've adapted, um, they've almost adopted these deplorables mm -hmm. into the right side where if you took the most extreme of the right, you would look at anarchists. They wouldn't want the government to have anything to do with anything. So that's I was just kind of curious of what your thoughts of how 
masterful the media has been able to not only convince the public but also the people who believe in the right side to adopt these people so i i have a couple of thoughts on that first of all if i'm if i'm hearing you correctly if i'm understanding your what you're trying to say correctly certainly it this is a problem like broadly speaking the the tendency that you're speaking to whereby the left introduces language into the culture and then the right adopts that language and it's not just language it's also premises you know the 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 left puts forward a premise such as you know healthcare is a right uh right. And, and that goes unchallenged and to a certain degree ends up slowly but surely be, becoming adopted and then the debate ends up happening within a context where we're going to lose because we've already conceded this flawed premise to begin with that's definitely a thing that happens that said specifically right. when it comes to the alt-right and this is something that i think that's it is important for people to understand the alt-right is a real thing that needs to be identified, properly identified, and opposed. The alt-right is not a creation of the left. It's not a creation of the media. It's a, it is a moniker that was adopted and coined by Richard Spencer, who's the president of something called the National Policy Institute, which is a self-identified white nationalist organization. And the, the, the notion of an alternative right is something that they came up with as a rebranding mechanism to try to sell white nationalism to a broader audience somewhere along the lines, you know, the folks who, who get together and, and hang out with each other wearing hoods and, and uh, tattooing swastikas on their arms and whatnot came together and had a marketing meeting. And we're like, you know, maybe we, if we softened our tone a little bit, maybe we covered up our swastika tattoos. Maybe we took off the hoods. And instead of calling ourselves, you know, the, the white nationalists, we call ourselves the alt-right. We might be able to get some more people over to our way of thinking that was the general idea and so it's a real thing now that said it has been it has the the actual meaning of it has been perverted in the way that you speak to where it's right. it's come to mean it's come to be used or misused to refer to people who are not part of that white nationalist core that originated the term okay yeah i didn't know that uh they had done their own marketing rather oh, yeah. than oh yeah i look i i don't recommend it i don't think it's necessarily worth your time but if you're curious by all means go on youtube you know google alt right google richard spencer google national policy institute and you can go down a rabbit hole a good 2 3 hours and get quite the education as to the history of where all this came from and uh, it's definitely vile. It definitely needs to be opposed. But it is completely separate from what many people mean when they use the term alt-right. I appreciate the call, Jeremy. 651-989-5855. Freestyle Friday. Closing argument. My name is Walter Atson. Twin Cities News Talk. AM 1130, 103.5 FM. com. Why drink the water from my hand? Freestyle Friday on Closing Argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, 651-989-5855, the number to join us this evening. We take uh, a looser-than-usual approach to the topics and to the flow of conversation on a Friday night. It's much more casual. We'll take it in whatever direction you want to go. I've thrown out a couple of uh, floating topics that I'm interested in hearing from you about. One is your recommendations uh, regarding bingeable 
television shows. You know, I'm pretty short on time between my day job and preparing for this show and coming on at night to do this show. There aren't a, there isn't a lot of time in between all of that for me to to take the risk. And it is always a risk, isn't it? Any time that you sit down, because there's so many options now in 2018. There's so many things you can do with your time when you have it that the choice to choose one thing and commit to it even for half an hour is quite the gamble. It's like trying to find a girlfriend. Yeah. <laughs> I I would not be able to relate to that in recent years. But yes, that that's definitely it, it's it's something that I'm looking for a little bit of help with. So that's topic number 1 that I'm interested in. The the other thing that I'm thrown out there for your consideration is I'm interested in having a conversation with people who are skeptical about libertarianism. Now, whether you're a liberal and you're skeptical of libertarianism or you're conservative and you're skeptical of it, I'm interested in hearing from you about what your issues with the idea of libertarianism is and, and specifically its practicality, its utility. Because very frequently, whenever I get into conversations with people about what liberty is and how it applies to particular issues, at some point in the conversation slash argument, you'll come to a point where they just kind of turn their nose up and say, well, this is, you know, you guys are a bunch of high school philosophers. This is silly. You know, I, I used to be another phrase you'll hear often is I used to be a libertarian when I was in high school too, you know, or when I was in college and then I grew out of it. I'm very interested in exploring this growth. Like at what point in your development, in your maturation process, did you realize, you know what? We actually should be slaves to some degree or another. We actually should be governed under force of law. We actually should have somebody's boot on our throat to one extent or another because it's good somehow, some way. Uh, I'm interested in an explanation of that. 651-989-5855. Looks like we got some recommendations coming in. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. So I assume you have Netflix if you're watching Breaking Bad. Breaking Bad's really good. Better Call Saul. Is the precursor to Breaking Bad, which is really good. Also, which mm-hmm. explores the backstory of two of the main characters of Breaking Bad. And then the other one is, if you're willing to read subtitles, uh, Mr. Sunshine is a really good idea too. Mr. So, Sunshine. And what's yeah. I haven't even heard of that one. What's that about? Uh, it's so it's about a guy that leaves North Korea, but they call it Josephine. Okay. I guess it's back in the 1800s, and and comes to America, grows up in America, becomes a American, like part of the military, and then goes back to try to help America and help his country at the same time. Interesting. Yeah, that's the kind of I, I would probably never even give that a shot, but I'll definitely take a look at it now that you've suggested. Appreciate well, the Well, and then I have an idea about libertarianism. Yeah, yeah. People think they grow out of it. Right. Sure. It's, it's because I think when they explore libertarianism, and they're starting to, they see that there's no way to amass power from themselves. And a lot of these people that go into politics, that's kind of what they're, why they're doing it, mm-hmm. because it's the nature of who you are to go into something like that. And, and, and they don't see any way to do it. I, I think libertarianism is the way to live, because, mm-hmm. let's be honest here, you can live any way you want to if you un- live underneath a truly free society. You can organize yourself in groups that are not libertarian. And, you know, you can you can be liberal in a libertarian society, but you can't be conservative in a liberal society. So it makes no sense why it wouldn't be that way. Appreciate the call, Barry. Appreciate the insights. Yeah, it's. 
I, I think it goes back to, you know, one of the observations of human nature that we have developed or explored over the course of this show and has become particularly apparent in recent weeks is the issue of significance and the the chase in human life for significance and the places where people turn to and the places where people look in order to find it. And, you know, if you, if you feel as though, if you define significance in certain ways, certain material ways, then you're, you're going to tend to seek a system by which you can, as Barry puts it, obtain power in order to, to chase after your sense of significance. If, however, you, you have a proper focus or a proper definition of where actual, meaningful, lasting, the type of significance that you dwell upon on your deathbed, where that comes from, your relationships, your achievements, your accomplishments, which we all know, we all have this spiritual sense, regardless of who we are and regardless of what we believe, we have what I hold to be a God-given conscience that informs us, regardless of how much we try to fight against it, of what our actual merits are. We understand when we have actually earned something and when we have not. You know, this is why Ayn Rand talked about this when she talked about, you know, people like Bernie Madoff um, who grow wealthy through grift, but in, in their soul, they are twisted and they operate under this, this kind of sense of paranoia almost in that they know that they have not earned what they have and it's a poison deep down in their soul. If, if you, reject that and if you seek after true lasting significance in your life you're gonna want to be free you're gonna want liberty because liberty is the condition whereby genuine significance can be achieved no one was ever no one ever loved at the point of a gun that's kind of a bottom line axiom for it the the things that actually matter in life cannot be compelled Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. When the pimp's in the crib, ma. Drop it like it's hot. Drop it like it's hot. Drop it like it's hot. When the pigs try to get at you. Park it like it's hot. Park it like it's hot. Park it like it's hot. And if a get an attitude, pop it like it's hot. Yeah, pop I could just like let this run for a little pop while. I got the roll on. Don't worry, it's the clean version. Oh, I, I gather. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Streaming at com and your iHeartRadio app. We are here 9 to 11 weeknights. Appreciate you joining us. Freelance Friday. We'll take the conversation in whatever direction you want. I've thrown out a couple of topics that I'm interested in hearing people from your recommendations for binge watching. Uh, you know, time is precious when you got a schedule like mine, and I, I'd like to shortcut the trial and error and just go with shows that you guys have already tried out and know are good. And uh, also, I'm interested in talking to folks about libertarianism and libertarians and the concept of liberty, particularly people who are skeptical of all of the above and uh, have have the general sense that libertarianism is somewhat childish or immature or impractical or doesn't work in the real world. Interested in exploring that with you. 651-989-5855. Brad Omland taking your calls and producing the show. Let's talk to Eric in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hey, bro. How you doing? Good. How was your vacation? Did I have one? 
You talking about I Labor said, Day? How was it? Them, them few days you was off. How was it? It was nice. It was a good time. I uh, I went. I there's this. I went up to the cabin, and there's this river that my father in law had been uh, trying to get me to go down in a boat with him to do some fishing, and I okay. finally I finally did, and it was quite the adventure. It was uh, it was a good time. Lots of crazy fish. I caught a little fish, yes, and um, you know there there are other stories that I won't I won't bore people with, but uh, it was a good time. Yeah, I was um, this program. um, It's on regular TV, the CW. It's been on for about thirteen years. It's called Supernatural. Oh, okay, yeah, sure. Yeah, man, it's it's the bomb, man. If you like, you know, out of world kind of supernatural kind of you know evil and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, you really enjoy this. It's I mean, from beginning to end, man. I've been watching it for 13 years. Did you ever watch uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer? When I was a kid, when I yeah. had nothing else to do. Right, 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 right. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm just, that, I'm just that, interested that. in how it compares to that. Well, well, see, these guys fight all evil. Okay. That, they, they fight, they fight vampires too, but they fight all evil demons okay. and man, it's man, it's crazy cool, man. Well, if it's been you going know, on for 13 years, there must be something to it because most shows don't go that long. Yeah, they they be up Especially here. Especially genre shows. Today, they they have a convention up here every year. Okay. And every time they come up here, I'm working, so I took this year off. You know what I mean? So yeah. I can go see them, man. You know they come they coming in the end of November, I think. All right. And yeah. Fair enough. October. Yeah, at the um, they be at the convention center, man. Oh All man, right. you should see the crowds. It's crazy. I'll put it on my list. I appreciate the suggestion. Thanks for calling, Eric. Let's go to Charles in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. How are we doing tonight? Doing all right. Hey, so I want to touch on the subject that you were talking about when it comes to libertarianism. And I don't have an issue with liberty, of course. I'm very free market advocated. Um, But however, though, I can see why people are scared of this topic and this idea of liberty, because you can go into a very big rabbit hole of when it comes to too much liberty, like the concept of anarcho-capitalism, mm-hmm. you know, where it's pretty much anarchy. Sure. You know, right. And there's, yeah. where's that, you know, structural in society, you know, there needs to be rules. And, you know, we've got to be pragmatic about some things. And I used to think totally as that anarcho-capitalist, but you got to think about this, you know, pragmatically speaking and moving society forward. There needs to be rules, boundaries, you know, and limitations to things. You know, yeah. you can't have a free market for every aspect of well, your life. Okay, too. so let's let's That's parse through issue. let's parse through some of that language because I think I think part of the problem is the the word choices. You know, this is a communication problem. Libertarianism has a, a communication problem. It also has some in some instances philosophical problems in terms of different people's approach to it. But broadly speaking, I think when people talk about the free market or they talk about liberty sometimes they'll slip in, they'll interchange different meanings and use the same word. So like when you say you can't have a free market for everything, I would argue that you absolutely can. I would argue that a free market includes out of necessity. It includes the very types of limitations that you're talking about. The reason that you're, So you would take a Murray Rothbard approach to, like, policing and have, you know, like, your own separate justice system, your own police forces. But but that's where that rabbit hole that I'm speaking about, and I've had this conversation with other people about that that turns them off. Yeah, no, my block list is full. My Facebook block list is full of people 
who I've gone down that rabbit hole with, and it's it's gotten it's gotten pretty nasty in terms of the personal attacks as a result. But no, th- th- I that's why I turn to you know my my view of liberty is heavily colored by Ayn Rand and heavily colored by objectivism. I don't regard myself yeah. as an objectivist, but her thoughts on the the proper role of government and her argument for government. See, that's that that strikes me as one of the the great deficiencies of libertarianism generally is that we are so often I've t- I've talked with uh with Xavier Bickett, the chair of the Republican Liberty Caucus about this when we've had him on. It's been a long time. We got to get him back in here. Uh, about the the difficulty that libertarians have in that everyone else is selling what they're going to do with government. You know, vote for me and I'm going to give you yeah, X. Correct. Vote for me and I'm going to provide this peace of mind for you, right? Whereas libertarians are going around and their message is, it sucks, let's get rid of it, right? Which mm-hmm. is, yeah. isn't, isn't a particularly... It's a very good message to me, at least, or people who can no, comprehend sure, it. <laughs> right, right. But but to the general public, you know, most people are, when they when they look to... When you, when you, if you were going to submit your application for a job and you went into the place, like let's say you want to, you're going into a Target, you go into a Target and you're like, you know, I generally don't like retail. That's pretty, that's a pretty bad sales pitch for wanting to work at the place, right? And so as a candidate, when you're, you're submitting your name forward to be considered to be in a, in a position of, in a public office, be a public official, and your pitch is, yeah, I don't really like this institution. I, I think we ought to whittle it down and get rid of it. That's a difficult sales pitch. Just instinctively and conceptually, it's difficult. That's why I think it's important that libertarians have a positive message in terms of what government properly should be doing. And then... Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, and this leads to another point, though, is, all right, so even if, hypothetically, and I really do hope that, you know, libertarians get more of a vote in Congress and they actually start making headways, you know, in local elections and stuff. And I think there are. I think there are people that truly do, especially in my age group and the millennials. There are people who are craving, you know, that individualism. And, you know what, you have your Bernie bros, but, I mean, come on, that's just the loud vocal minority it really is but it's we are we are craving to have that you know we can be our own people and we don't have to let others dictate what we're going to do and but when that does happen though and if it were to happen what's going to stop it from growing out of control like we had already when it came to the republican and democrat party what's going to stop human nature from coming in and you know forcing another you know, GOP, you know, losing its roots and losing what it did so well back in the day and to the DNC and to the Democrats. I mean, there's it, it just all comes back. So to once you gain power, what's going to yeah. stop you from going too much into it again? Well, I mean, People what what it, what stopped George Washington from taking the crown when it was offered to him? The, the, this is the inherent difficulty of our side of the argument is that we, what we're arguing for is a context that requires from each and every individual this thing called self-restraint. And and the the affirmative positive choice to engage in thought and engage in productivity. What we're talking about in essence is virtue. And we're advocating for a system of government that requires virtue of its citizens. And so this is more than just a political battle. This is also a cultural and a spiritual battle. And it's something that we have to be pursuing on multiple avenues and from multiple angles in our lives and our circles of influence to actually try to develop in our children and in our friends and in the the people who are are willing to listen to us and who we have relationships with in our broader community that these these different 
virtues that enable liberty to work. Because one of, one of the chief arguments, and I appreciate the call, Charles, one of the chief arguments that you hear in opposition to libertarian ideas is that you, you can't trust people to be free because they're going to do X, Y, and Z. And there's, there's a truth to that, but my response would be twofold. Number one, libertarianism doesn't advocate for allowing people to violate other people's rights. Right. Like this is this is the Ayn Rand case for government. You need to have the institution of government in place to respond correctly and proportionally to violations of people's rights, to criminals, to people who engage in fraud, to foreign threats and what have you. Number one. So there is there is no libertarian ideal which involves leniency towards crime or leniency towards fraud. That's not part of the package, number one. But number two, we need to, we need to understand that what we're getting after, when I talk about the, the importance of significance in our lives, what we're getting after in life cannot be strictly political. And if we proceed from the premise that there's some law we can pass or some person we can elect or some constitution we can ratify or amendment we can ratify that the the net result of which is going to be some kind of utopia whereby good things happen and bad things don't we're never going to achieve that and we're fooling ourselves and we're setting we might as well just give up and let the progressives have it and let the socialists have it and let them go with their premise because that's what they believe in they believe that perfection can be legislated what we have to understand and what we do understand what we need to advocate for is that the 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 pursuit of happiness is not something that it happens as an act of congress it's something that happens through the choices that are made by individuals acting in community through relationships that are chosen and governed by consent 651-989-5855 closing argument my name is Walter Edson Twin Cities News Talk AM 1130 1035FM com. News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument, my name is Walter Hudson. 651-989-5855. Freelance Friday, taking it easy, taking a relaxing journey into your weekend. Let's go straight to those phones. Joe in St. Louis Park, welcome to the program. Uh, hi, Walter. Hi. Yeah, I think someone may have already touched on this. But some of the most fun binge stuff is uh, Korean dramas. Really? Yeah. What makes Korean dramas particularly unique and binge-worthy? To me, they're much more entertaining Mm -hmm. than what we get on uh, American television. So are these, like, subtitled? Uh, For those of us who don't, to understand Korean, yeah. <laughs> right. Well, that would definitely I would fall into that category. So. Yeah, I actually learned Korean about forty years ago. Oh, okay. All right. So, uh, is this stuff on Netflix? Uh, Netflix has several hundred. Really. Uh, so does uh, Amazon Prime. Okay. There are a few uh, websites. Uh, One is Drama Fever, Mm -hmm. which is available free, or they have a a paywall as well. Okay. 
That's owned by Warner Brothers. Uh huh. Is that like a strictly Korean site? Pardon? Is that strictly Korean stuff on Drama Fever? Uh, they actually do Korean, Chinese, and Japanese. Okay, interesting. Uh, they used to do Mexican. I don't know if they still do or not. All right. Well, I appreciate the suggestion, Joe. That's definitely something I would not have tripped upon on my own, so I'm glad I asked. Let's talk to Ted in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Hey. Yeah, I really liked your show a couple nights ago, and you were talking about that the last, the far last quarter. But uh, what I want to talk about in today's news, uh, mm-hmm. Syria and Russia have threatened to attack our base in Syria. Now, I'm just amazed by how lack of interest the uh, local newspapers and national newspapers pay to stories of national defense. Like the Chinese Navy just surpassed us in ships and uh, all kinds of threats and dangers. Russia, these massive war games, which one of these days we're going to find out it's not really a war game. They're really uh, they're using these war games as a ruse so someday in the future they can launch the attacks, but now they've threatened our base in Syria. And uh, Yeah, as I scan the, at least the Star Tribune, I don't see any reference to that whatsoever. It didn't come up during my show prep tonight. Uh, yeah, let's see Google what's going Syria, on. you'll find it. Uh, okay. They've threatened to attack our base. We have responded that well, we will defend our base, but that could really get bad. And, you know, we just need to go on report this kind of stuff. All right. Appreciate the the tip. Appreciate the thoughts. We'll have to look into that. If did you trip upon anything along those lines? I yeah. I just googled an article here, and uh, this is from the L.A. Times. The base is used by U.S. special forces to train Syrian fighters who are confronting Islamic State militants, and it seemed a little like his language was off, and that the U.S. has a base in Syria. Mm-hmm. Technically, we don't, um, but it's. It's a true story, yes, in, in a general sense. I see. So it's, a, it's we, a little bit of a proxy situation is what you're talking correct. about. Correct. Yes, exactly. I mean, we know that we've had U.S. troops in Syria kind of as a shadow trainer type of deal so that the U.N. doesn't get too angry about it. But, um, yeah, it's basically the U.S. is walking in the line of fire between Russia and Syria. Yeah, which kind of raises the question as to, you know, what do you suggest that we do? You know, I and and I maybe I should have kept him on the line to get his take on what he would prescribe in terms of a response. It occurs to me that, you know, this type of rhetoric gets tossed around on a fairly regular basis of, oh, you better watch out or we're going to do X, Y or Z. And uh, if if they actually cross some sort of line, then, you know, I'm all for whatever it's appropriate, whatever appropriate operational action needs to take place. Uh, I'm not sure we want to jump the gun and provoke something before it actually occurs. Well, if you believe Bob Woodward, apparently Trump wanted uh, Bashar al-Assad, the president of Syria, killed. Yeah, which I do. I do believe that. I don't see like, and that's that falls into like every. We, I look at it two different ways. The Woodward revelations. On the one hand, many of them on their face weren't particularly shocking or even concerning, and and two, we have to call into question their veracity given the methodology that Woodward utilized. So, you know, I, I I don't care on two fronts. I don't care because I can't take it at face value that they're accurate, and I don't care in the sense that even if they are accurate, they're really not that big of a deal. The notion that a guy in the in the face of having seen what Bashir Assad did, that his immediate emotional reaction would be, we need to kill him, 
he, did he follow through? That would be the the tipping point. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Cities News Talk, AM 1130-1035 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson. Streaming at TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. It's Friday night. Doing a little freelance Friday action. Taking your calls on virtually any topic. Throwing a couple things out there. Talking about uh, your recommendations for bingeable television. And also just, you know, some light conversation about libertarianism. Uh, particularly interested in those of you who are skeptical of it and don't think it's particularly practical, doesn't work in the real world, is indicative of a kind of a childish high school sophomore or or early college mentality that people, that, you know, wise people eventually grow out of. Interested in hearing that perspective. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Omlin taking those calls and producing the show. Let's go to Michael in St. Paul. Appreciate you holding. Uh, Walter? Yep. Hi. Um, I'm Michael. I uh, First, I, I want to keep it light. Uh, a couple of the best shows that you could ever possibly, ever possibly watch. Um, Sons of Anarchy. Yeah, I started that one. I haven't followed through on it. I've got maybe a couple episodes in. It looks good. Oh, oh, God. It, I mean... If you go through the whole thing, mm-hmm. absolutely incredible. The uh, the telling of the story and the unraveling of this of this scooter club. And yeah, I, scooter club. I'm I'm, <laughs> I, I'm an old biker. I, I was born in the '50s, grew up in the '60s and '70s. Yeah, and I've been riding motorcycles since I was ten, and um, I have had all kinds of interaction between um, some of the very best yeah. and some of the very worst. Um, and and it, it, it's just a wonderful series. All right. I'll take another look at it. All right. And um, Animal Kingdom. Have you, have you looked at that at all? I'm not sure to what you're referring. Animal Kingdom. It, it's a series. Uh, okay. What's it about? Um, well, it, 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 it's about a tight knit family, mm-hmm. um, a crime family okay. that, that commits, um, well, robberies, okay. ice. Sure. That, sure. Uh, I mean, it, it's on TNT, uh, and, uh, it, it's absolutely incredible. Is there, who, uh, is there anybody of note who's of in it? Things, once you start watching it. You'll never get out of it. Oh, well, that's a high recommendation. That's exactly the kind of thing I'm looking for. Something that you, you got to watch the next one. You got to watch the next one. All right. Animal I, Kingdom would be incredible. If, okay. if, you, if you start it, you won't stop. All right. Fair enough. Appreciate the recommendations. Appreciate you staying on hold to make them. All right. So let's get into a little bit of the news, shall we? I mean, we've gotten an hour into the program and I, I haven't referenced a single article, which is kind of nice. It's nice on a Friday night to just kind of take a, a nice, relaxing stroll into into the weekend. But I did want to touch upon some of the developments that are continuing to emerge in the wake of that anonymous op-ed 
that was posted in the New York Times on Wednesday and uh, has become the focus of much analysis and much uh, speculation over the past couple of days. Axios has a piece of follow-up. They write, President Trump is not just seething about Bob Woodward. He's deeply suspicious of much of the government he oversees, from the hordes of folks inside agencies right up to some of the senior-most political appointees and even some hand-picked aides inside his own White House, officials tell Axios. The big picture? He should be paranoid. In the hours after the New York Times published the anonymous op-ed from a senior official in the Trump administration trashing the president, two senior administration officials reached out to Axios to say the author stole the words right out of their mouths. I find the reaction to the New York Times op-ed fascinating that people seem so shocked that there is a resistance from inside, one senior official said. A lot of us were wishing we'd been the writer, I suspect. I hope he, Trump, knows. Maybe he does. There are dozens and dozens of us. This is the direct quote from an anonymous senior official talking to Axios. Why it matters? Several senior White House officials have described their roles to us as saving America and the world from this president. A good number of current White House officials have privately admitted to us they consider Trump unstable and at times dangerously slow. I assume they mean mentally. But the really deep concern and contempt from our experience has been at the agencies and particularly in the foreign policy arena. From sometime last year, or for sometime last year, Trump even carried with him a handwritten list of people suspected to be leakers undermining his agenda. He would basically be like, we've got to get rid of them. The snakes are everywhere, but we're getting rid of them, said a source close to Trump. Trump would often ask staff whom they thought could be trusted. He often asked uh, the people who work for him what they think about their colleagues, which can not only be uncomfortable, but confusing to Trump. Rival staffers shoot at each other, and Trump is left not knowing who to believe. Officials describe an increasingly conspiracy-minded president. When he was super frustrated about the leaks, he would rail about the snakes in the White House, said a source who has discussed administration leakers with the president. Especially early on, when we would be in the Roosevelt Room meetings, he would sit down at the table and get to talking, then turn around and see who was sitting along the walls behind him. One day after one of those meetings, he said, everything that just happened is going to leak. I don't know any of those people in the room. He was very paranoid about this. Uh, and they go on to to report on, on these this nature. Now, again, you know, we're dealing with Axios here. We're dealing with comments from anonymous sources yet again. So we have the same problem that we always have of, you know, what do we take seriously? Who are these people? Are they actually in a position to know? And, and we're not going to get the answers to those questions. But the general sense that I gather from this piece and similar pieces in the aftermath of the anonymous op-ed at the New York Times is a confirmation of our initial analysis, which is that the effect of this piece has been to exacerbate and and uh, pour gasoline on the fire of the paranoia that was already inherently there with Trump in terms, and, you know, with good cause, with good merit, obviously. You know, when you've got people around you who regard themselves as a resistance to their boss, a resistance to the administration working within that administration, that is a problem. That is something that does, in fact, need to be ferreted out and something needs to be done about. Uh, and it's and it's untenable. You know, how do you proceed? How do you go about pursuing your agenda when you can't trust the team of people who you have around you to actually be working toward the fulfillment of your agenda? It's particularly problematic. 
and but there's another aspect of this that you know because there are things that trump doesn't have control over and there are things that he does have control over that could potentially make the situation better than it currently is and there's a degree to which this this culture that's described consistently from within the white house has been fostered by and facilitated by and even caused by donald trump he strikes me and this this goes back to accounts we've heard about him prior to him becoming president from his his uh, life in business his life in real estate his interactions and business arrangements with other folks uh, in other contexts he strikes me as a bad person to work for and a bad person to work with just in terms of his his expectations his shifting priorities his his sense of one upsmanship and the the requirements of his ego and what have you all of which adds up to bad leadership in the organizational sense and this isn't me trying to you know rag on trump because i don't like trump this is this is an observation you know you could put you could take these same characteristics and put them in any other person in charge of any other organization and the outcome would be the same which is a disorganized institution that develops within it a, a type of insurgency where you have people who who feel as though they need to take the reins even though that's not their job even though they're exceeding the bounds of what they were hired to do they feel as though they need to take the reins because they don't trust how things are being managed Trump could do certain things that would instill a sense of confidence in the people who work for him and with him and that make them all feel like they're part of the same team that could go a long way towards towards healing things, for, for lack of a better term, within the White House. And I wish he would make a good faith effort to do so. It wouldn't solve all the problems. I mean, you also have to go after the leakers. You also have to have real accountability and consequences for people who have acted in an unprofessional manner. But nonetheless, you know, it, it, we have to do more than just the or, you know, I shouldn't use the term we because this is this is Trump here. Trump has to do more than just get rid of the people who are causing problems. Now, he also has to create a new culture in which whatever new people he brings in will actually be enabled to do the job that he intends for them to do. Let's talk to Chris in Minneapolis. Welcome to the program. Hey, I just had a question. Yeah. Well, what do you think think about smoking weed? Like, is that a libertarian thing? That's cool. <laughs> or what? I mean, there are, there are different there are different ways in which one could approach answering that question. I'm going to choose to approach it from the legal perspective in terms of what do I think about the legal ability to choose as an individual to smoke weed. You change that though. What do you mean? Who, who's a libertarian candidate? Gary Johnson. For governor and for everything, I'm going to vote for that guy. You mean in Minnesota? Yeah, I don't even know if there is one running for governor in Minnesota. There is, but I don't mm. remember his name off the top of my head. But there is also a legal marijuana now party that's pretty active in Minnesota. Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, the short answer to your question is, in terms of the legalization of the recreational use of marijuana, I'm all for it. I don't think that the... the, And and for one very simple libertarian reason, and that is the use of marijuana victimizes precisely no one. No one... You cannot point to somebody who who has been whose rights have been violated because somebody else used marijuana. You know, and often you what you indulge? 
I appreciate the call tonight, Chris. What did he say? <laughs> he asked me if I indulge. Oh, no, Walter so. does not smoke weed. Thank you, Brad. <laughs> but, you know, the the notion that, because you'll often hear the argument of, oh, well, you're not, well, we've had it on this show with callers, where they'll be like, well, you're not accounting for the damage done to families. You're not accounting for the crime that people engage in. Uh, in order to fund their drug habit, which, you know, usually when you're talking about drug-related crime, it's typically things that are harder than marijuana in terms of, you know, what I there, there isn't a whole, there aren't people who are who are out there in, engaged in, you know, liquor store robberies in order to go turn around and buy a dime bag, right? Like, that's that's generally not the narrative. Usually they're hooked on crack or they're hooked on heroin, they're hooked on something harder, and that's why they're they're uh, turning to criminal activity. But the what's what's important to recognize is that the legalization of recreational marijuana would have two effects. Number one, it it would not legalize crime. Like, we wouldn't be like, oh, now you can rob liquor stores because you can smoke. That would not come along with the legalization of recreational marijuana, number one. And number two, the incentive to engage, to the extent that we decriminalized various drugs, the incentive to engage in crime in order to, to purchase them would go down because the cost and the the uh, risk reward ratio of trying to obtain them it's like prohibition you wouldn't have you wouldn't have to take on as much of a risk in order to obtain what it is that you're seeking after because it would no longer be illegal if you smoke weed and then go and rob a liquor store you're doing it wrong this is very true i mean i would like to see the tape on that i'm sure there probably is somewhere of the the guy who got high and tried to rob a liquor store. Although I have to imagine that if if that was your intent at the beginning of the night, like if that was your plan, let's smoke up and then go rob a liquor store. Once you got past step number one, you probably would forget about step number two, or at least lose your way on your way to trying to fulfill it. Six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Every morning there's a halo hanging from the corner of my girlfriend's four post bed. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM. Closing argument. My name's Walter Hudson, 651-989-5855. The number to join us this evening. From Politico, President Donald Trump on Friday urged Attorney General Jeff Sessions to help find the author of the anonymous New York Times op-ed that depicted a resistance inside his administration with staffers trying to thwart an impulsive president. I would say Jeff should be investigating who the author of that piece was because I really believe it's national security, Trump told reporters aboard Air Force One en route to North Dakota, according to a pool report. The president has fumed publicly about the column since it was published on Wednesday, calling the writer gutless and declaring the anonymous essay amounted to treason. So he's trying to put Jeff Sessions on the case. And uh, there he's got advice from Senator Rand Paul. This from the Washington Examiner. Paul said Thursday afternoon that he believes President Trump would be justified in using lie detector tests to figure out which senior administrative official wrote the anonymous New York Times op-ed. The Washington Examiner confirmed Paul's comments with the Senator's Communications Director, Sergio Gore. The Times published an anonymous op-ed Wednesday that described members of the Trump administration working diligently to stop the president's worst impulses and move against parts of his agenda. 
The author claimed not to be working alone and that a group is acting because they believe their primary duty is to protect the country. And this is interesting in that it, you know, we've been talking, one of the questions that I've been putting forward to you tonight on this Freelance Friday is I've been asking for your thoughts on libertarianism and libertarians and the practicality of these these ideas surrounding the notion of liberty, because I very often find myself confronted with people who kind of scoff and mock the idea of libertarianism and, and treat it as though it's some sort of adolescent fantasy that doesn't work in the real world. And the, <laughs> look, I understand why some people come to that conclusion. When I consider some of the responses that I come across from people who identify as libertarians. And one of those was found in response to this move by Rand Paul, this suggestion by Rand Paul in reason.com. JD Tusile writes, of all the takes on Wednesday's anonymous missive from an alleged resistance cell member inside the White House, it's hard to pick the most popcorn worthy. Was it the New York Times op-ed, was it treason? A venture into unprecedented territory? Evidence of a cowardly coup? This is fun stuff if your main interest is in seeing the various factions of the political crisis devour one another. Not so fun, though, is the suggestion that the president should ferret out the mole through the junk sciency technique of mass lie detector tests. Senator Rand Paul says Trump would be justified in using lie detector tests to find the author of the anonymous critical New York Times op-ed tweeted The Hill's Alex Bolton. Paul's office confirmed to me by email that the report was true. Paul's proposed polygraph, the device usually referred to by the term lie detector, dragnet, is more than a bit disappointing coming from one of the few elected officials in the U.S. federal government who can credibly claim to be a civil libertarian. He opposed Gina Haspel's nomination to head the CIA because of her complicity in torture. He led the charge against warrantless surveillance both under this administration and its predecessor. Yet when it comes to hooking government staffers up to wires and dividing their loyalty to the administration... Paul suddenly thinks it's a swell idea. Our founders gave us the Fourth Amendment to prevent a tyrannical government from invading our privacy, and we are fools to relinquish that hard-won right because of fear, Senator Paul argued earlier this year in a piece published by Reason. Some argue that if you have nothing to hide, you have nothing to fear, but this is a slap in the face to our constitutional standard of innocent until proven guilty. Great sentiments. Why abandon them now? Now, uh, Abandon them how is my question, because what, what, what Paul is suggesting, what Rand Paul is suggesting is that the president ought to take action to investigate who amongst his staff, who amongst his cabinet, who surrounding him is actively working to subvert his agenda and actively working against him from within his White House. That strikes me as fairly non-controversial and having nothing whatsoever to do with civil liberties. This isn't the president saying we're going to go around and we're going to randomly round up civilians and put them under a lie detector and determine whether or not they're loyal to me. That's not what this is. This is the idea that we ought to we ought to put people under a lie detector test who have consented to the relationship of working for the president of the United States, a relationship which seems to be predicated upon actually doing what he wants and not working against his interests. Seems to me to be fairly rational. I don't understand this conflation. And this, and this is one of the, you know, when we talk about the, the weaknesses of libertarian pursuits in the public discourse, 
this is one of them. It's the conflation of the, the limitations of your actual rights with applications that have nothing whatsoever to do with them. You don't have a Fourth Amendment right to work in the government. You don't have a constitutional right to be a member of the White House staff or to be an appointee to the president's cabinet. In fact, you have no right to that whatsoever. It's a privilege. It's an honor. It's something that is bestowed upon you. It is like literally the opposite of a right. And the, the to to conflate these two things, to argue as though what Rand Paul suggests is a violation of Fourth Amendment rights is to undermine the reality of what Fourth Amendment rights actually are. You see this happen all the time in a broader in the broader discourse in discussions related to the First Amendment, where you know a, a company will, will, like Facebook, for instance, a Facebook gets caught censoring somebody because of their political views, or Twitter, you know, just recently this week shut down Infowars, shut down Alex Jones, and they'll get accused of violating his First Amendment rights. Well, of course they're not, right? Because they're not the government. They didn't put him in jail. They didn't fine him, right? He doesn't have less freedom now. He just doesn't get to use their platform. That was a relationship that, like all relationships, involved two parties. One was Alex Jones. The other was Twitter. And in order for the relationship to continue in a context of liberty, they both must sustain their consent. When one of them decides they're no longer consent to the relationship, the relationship ends. That's how relationships work. There are no rights violations there. And by conflating these two ideas of of the, the, the notion of, you know, because we've talked on this show about the importance of free expression and it is a cultural value. And are, are the actions that these social media companies taking against InfoWars a violation of that sentiment and that that virtue, that cultural virtue? Absolutely. But to conflate that with the notion of your right to free speech actually does damage to free speech. And we've seen that manifest in calls like that from Laura Ingram that Brad and Max talked about on Tuesday to nationalize Facebook in response to some of these actions that they've taken. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, Friday continues on closing argument. My name is Walter Edson, Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 1035 FM, streaming at com and on your iHeartRadio app. We're here 9 to 11 weeknights. 651-989-5855, the number to join us. Brad Omland taking those calls and producing the show. Let's go to Ben in Roseville. Welcome to the program. Hey, Walter. Um, so in the spirit of Freestyle Friday, I've had a question mm-hmm. I've been thinking about recently. Um, is it morally sound to reserve voting rights only for U.S. citizens that, A, are eligible for the draft, and then, B, uh, are net taxpayers, meaning they put in more than they take out? I'll hang up and listen. I just want to know what you think of that. Maybe a little bit controversial, but uh, I think it's something that is kind of an interesting thing to ponder in today's uh, mm-hmm. society. I appreciate the call, Ben. Yeah, I, you know, that's a that's a question that is difficult to come up with a succinct answer for because 
there there's a lot to weigh there in terms of you know what are the what are the particular circumstances that we're even talking about i think i think the best way to approach it is to articulate a a general principle that you would apply to the task of trying to determine what qualifications for voting ought to be and i, I think the first thing we have to establish is that there properly ought to be qualifications i think this is something that has increasingly become oddly controversial the notion that you know everybody anybody and everybody should just be able to vote no matter what no matter who they are no matter what their age i mean you got movements out there to to lower the voting age to 16 you know i i haven't seen anything below that but why not right like why not just have 12 year olds do it i guess is is where we're getting towards uh and and to make it extraordinarily convenient where you can do it from your phone you can do it from the internet you can somebody can somebody's going to pick you up from your house and drive you to the polling place or bring the polling place to you we're going to have drive through voting you know you get get a get to cast a vote cast a ballot when you pick up your cheeseburger or burger king whatever the case may be and, and all of it seems to get away from the notion of voting as as an act of thoughtful meaningful participation and expression and seeking after a value and exercising a virtue you know the the idea that because here's the thing the the simple fact of the matter is when you cast your vote if if you sit and you to and you spend i don't know 20 hours researching all the races looking into all the candidates, considering all the issues, and coming up with a very thoughtful slate of candidates that you want to go out and support on Election Day, your vote counts just as much and no more and no less than the vote of somebody who just, who was approached on the street by somebody and, and picked up and taken to the polling place and has no idea who half the people on the ballot even are. And the idea that we ought to encourage more of the latter. We ought to make it easier for people to put less thought into deciding who gets to run the country strikes me as an inherently prima facie bad idea. Now, you can also err on the other side of that analysis where you get into being restrict, overly restrictive in terms of you know who can vote and on what terms and what it takes in order to be able to do so. And, and you don't want to get too far in that direction either. So how do you balance it? And again, I think, you know, you have speaking broadly, you know, because you need a more thoughtful analysis in order to get into the specifics. But speaking broadly uh, and, and to the point made by the caller, it's important to and, and we need to we need to get to the place where we don't have these people who are net um I don't know exactly how to articulate, but he he talked about net positive taxpayers. It was kind of an an odd rhetorical formation, but we shouldn't have a scenario whereby there are people who are taking more out than they're putting in. I mean, that's the problem right there. I don't think the solution is to to start going around cutting people's voting rights. I think the solution is to change the policy so that everybody is vested in the direction that government goes. Well, that was the idea behind the founding fathers when they set up their voting systems in the respective states. In most states, you had to be a landowner, you right. had to pay taxes, and you had yeah. to be a member of the church. Right. And the idea, and so basically it was to Ben's point that you, 
you know, paid into taxes or right. be kind of the same system. Right. And the idea was that if you aren't of voting or if you don't qualify to vote, then chances are government will not concern you in that your life, your rights won't be impacted by what government does. And at the time, there was a, a truth to that, right? Because government was so small relative to how we understand it today that if you didn't fit into that that limited category, government didn't concern you. Government wasn't something that was a day-to-day part of your life. And part of what the, the issue that we're facing today is that government has become so pervasive and invasive and overwhelming and proliferated into our day-to-day, moment-to-moment lives that there's this sense that we all have a stake in what things happen. And indeed, that's the, that is the source of our polarization. That is the source of the partisan rancor. It's the stakes that have been raised to a level that is so high that people you know, collapse into weeping and terror when an election doesn't go the way they wanted it to. Because their entire sense of significance and their their view of the the possibilities for their future is wrapped up in who the next president of the United States is or who controls Congress for the next two years. This is absurd. It's ludicrous. And so, you know, I don't think the solution lies in voting rights as such. I think it lies in the what it is that we're trying to affect with government, regardless of who gets put into office. In other words, the the role and scope. All right, let's uh, let's sneak in another one here before we go to our final break of the evening. Let's talk to Barry in St. Paul. Welcome to the program. So I wonder if the problem with this whole op-ed situation isn't really what was written or how it was written or anything like that, but all the time that Trump puts into thinking about this. And then if you look at the other side, would we really have a problem if somebody in Obama's administration fought his trying to implement DACA? as opposed to us thinking that it's not right for somebody to fight Trump and dissolving it. It, it, You know, it seems like there's a few minds of all this. Yeah, I I understand what you're saying, and it is difficult to try to to ascertain those different perspectives as we analyze the news of the day. Appreciate your call, Barry. 651-989-5855. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM 1130, 103.5 FM, TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com. Almost to the weekend here. Freelance Friday. My name is Walter Hudson. Freelance Friday. I always get that confused. Freestyle Friday. It's both. That's it's how both. much it's freelance or freestyle Friday. Yeah, you know, it's it's both. It really is. I mean, you know, we're we're up for whatever. We're we're offering our services to the highest bidder. Freedom Friday. Yeah, there you go. Closing argument. My name is Walter Hudson. Twin Cities News Talk, AM eleven thirty one zero three five FM six five one nine eight nine five eight five five. Let's go to Marty in New Brighton. Thanks for holding. Hey there, Walter. I want to tell you a great show. Thank you. Um, what I have for you here is a great series. It's only 14 episodes. It was short-lived. It's called Firefly. What's it called? Oh, Firefly. Yeah, I've seen Firefly. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's one of the best shows yeah. ever made. Yeah, I think so. They even made a movie called Serenity that was released in the theater- yeah. theaters. Yeah. You know, great stories make make you think, kind of like your, your show there. Mm-hmm. Um, talk about government quite a bit. 
uh, the world they live in, of course, is rather oh authoritarian. Yep. And mm-hmm. so these people kind of live on the fringe. Yeah. Uh, they're smugglers and thieves, but they have a high code of uh, ethics and honor. Right. And uh, it's it's really worth watching. Um, and like I say, there's only 14 episodes plus the movie. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, yeah, it's got great actors like uh, Alec, um, you know, Adam Baldwin. Yep. Um, Nathan Fillion, mm-hmm. Ron Glass from um, uh, Bernie Miller, if you remember him, and uh, he did a what the Odd Couple too for a while. Yeah. Um, Jewel Strait, Summer Glau. Yeah. Alan Trudek. Trudek. Yeah. Uh, just a really great cast. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate the the suggestion for the listeners and uh, add my my endorsement to it. Yeah, the, it is a great show. One of the great things about Firefly is that, and and you know, this is kind of a Josh Whedon thing. Whenever he does original work, you know, in recent years he's become he's he's got a higher profile being the director of the first couple of Avengers movies, and and he's done a lot of adaptation and what have you. But when he's doing his own original material, he the he's a bit of a nihilist uh, not a bit of a nihilist he is a nihilist like he doesn't really believe in anything really he certainly doesn't believe in god he doesn't believe in much of of value or virtue he just thinks that life is kind of like a random series of occurrences and one of the con- the um, themes that pops up in his work whether it's buffy the vampire slayer or he had a movie out called cabin in the woods a few years ago that was all about this or firefly is that you can you can achieve you can find some happiness in your life here and there you know you can find some fulfillment in relationships to an extent but sooner or later the big bad dark is going to take us all is basically his notion it's this this over Writing fear of death and and this kind of negativity that l- hangs over everything, and so that contrasts to what you tend to expect in your entertainment. You always tend to expect happy endings. You tend to expect that the good guys are going to prevail. And the whole premise of Firefly is that the good guys didn't prevail. It's it's basically what happens after a civil war when the good guys lose, right? And how do you go on living your life in in a way that is true to ideals that no longer fit into the the prevailing culture and, and certainly aren't sanctioned by the prevailing government? And uh, it's pretty fascinating in that way. This This notion of Josh Whedon and his nihilism speaks to something that we brought up much earlier in the show towards the, the opening of the program tonight at 9 o'clock. And that was... The question of why, because you know, a caller called in and asked, "Well, why is there so? Why is there this hypocrisy, this this double standard in how leftists are treated generally in the culture when they step over the line and say something inappropriate, like when Peter Fonda uh, said of Baron Trump that he ought to be uh, raped by pedophiles? You know, that, that horrible, terrible comment." And it was just a blip on the radar. Nobody cared. And when Roseanne Barr said something horrible about Valerie Jarrett, her career was over. Her show was canceled and you know she was thrown to the wolves. And the answer that I provided is that the reason you have this double standard is because the left controls all of the institutions. They control the institutions of higher learning. They control the media. They control Hollywood. They're, they're in a position of influence over everything and therefore set the rules, set the terms, set the conditions on which 
all these different institutions operate. And one of the tasks that lies before the right is to take back ground in these various institutions, whether it's higher learning or you know the, the media institutions or Hollywood in particular, which raises the question of why doesn't that happen? Why don't you see more conservatives who are interested in pursuing acting and screenwriting and and you know music and different forms of artistry and what have you? And I think the reason, honest to God, the reason why you don't see so many artsy fartsy conservatives as you do liberals is because a conservative by their very nature tends to be reconciled. There isn't a lot of conflict in a conservative's life because we tend to have a pretty good sense of what our meaning and our purpose is and what it is that we're getting after and what we care about and where real significance can be found. And we're focused on pursuing those ends. And so we get up and we go to work and we spend time with our family and we do the things that we, we are time tested and that we know we can turn to in order to chase after that sense of significance. People who tend to be more left leaning on the other hand, live in this state of perpetual angst perpetual conflict they don't know what to do they don't know how to what they want they don't know how to achieve what they want even if they knew what that thing was and you see this reflected a lot in media one of the things one of the shows that my wife and i uh started watching a couple of months back there's a show on netflix called love that's all about this couple and their process of getting together and it's a couple of single people living i think in california and both of them are suffering from the same ailment whereby they've rejected all of the traditional standards, you know, marriage, family, you know, the the institutions by which people have pursued happiness throughout time. They reject that as antiquated and, and you know, for an old timey and out of touch. And they're pursuing their happiness through all these short sighted means, whether it's, you know, using drugs or it, frivolous sexual relationships, whatever the case may be, and they can't figure out why they're unhappy. They're both miserable. They're totally miserable people, and they can't figure out why am I so miserable? Why do I hate life? Why do bad things keep happening to me? And they haven't found this link. They haven't discovered this link between institutions and, and higher values like family and marriage or what have you and the pursuit of happiness. And that, that angst, that conflict is a persistent reality in the lives of the left. And that's why they tend to be the angsty, dark, creative forces that find their homes in places like Hollywood. There is a way to get around that, but we'll have to save that topic for another time. Closing argument. Enjoy your weekend. TwinCitiesNewsTalk.com.